On the virtual Bible study tonight, we want to talk about an unpopular topic. Yeah, it's a tough subject. It's uh, always an emotional subject, but we want to talk about church discipline tonight. A lot of questions about uh, local congregations and their role in disciplining uh, members who become unfaithful. All right, we're going to talk about that, and we're getting started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and we welcome you to the virtual bible study for thursday april 19th 2018 my name is jacob Gwynn. my father greg Gwynn is back tonight dad welcome back to the program jacob great to be here sorry we sort of left you in the lurch that's last all right week. glad that you're here monty's behind the controls tonight monty thank you for coming tonight thank you jacob it's good to be here and thank you for dialing in tonight on on uh, thevirtualbiblestudy.com or YouTube or Facebook, wherever you may be watching us tonight. Glad that you're here, and we look forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com and in the chat room tonight. Jacob, we're going to talk about church discipline tonight. And uh, one of the things that sort of motivated me to choose this topic for our discussion tonight is a survey that we found online about how seldom churches practice discipline. Okay. Uh, this is a survey by Lifeway Research. Uh, they they surveyed a thousand Protestant senior pastors. Fifty five percent of them says no member has ever been disciplined during their time as pastor of the local church where they are. Sixteen um, percent said their church has disciplined a member in the last year. within the last month, 5% in the last six months, 8% in the last year. But overwhelmingly, the numbers point out that churches are not following what the New Testament teaches concerning the need for discipline of those who become unfaithful. Uh, I think that that trend is also evidenced in in churches of Christ, Seems, and that's just sort of a feeling I get, but I do think that this is a practice that has fallen out of uh, standing with most people, and they think it's just they don't want to do it. They, it's not a, it's, it's not politically correct to be sure. All right. Well, it needs to be talked about because the scriptures are thorough in uh, instructions on how uh, we should behave to those who have decided that they are going to turn their back on the Lord and stop following Him. Yeah, um, I, I was surprised that among Baptists, uh, uh, let's see. Pentecostals and holiness and Baptists are the most likely to uh, discipline uh, unfaithful members. Uh, Methodist Presbyterians are less likely. Overall, half of evangelical pastors and two-thirds of mainline pastors say they don't know of a case, they don't know of any case where someone was disciplined at their church. Probably in a lot of those denominations, there's probably nothing that would qualify <laughs> Or to be disciplined. I mean, I you can do basically anything you want the way it is well, now. If they would take people in 
I mean, they accept people into their membership that who are, are practicing sins like homosexuality and adultery. So, so what would it take to get kicked uh, out, uh, withdrawn from yeah. in such a, a denomination? All right, eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeview.com. You know I, that that survey sort of struck me a little bit because, well, it's a good thing if we aren't practicing church discipline. So it's not like there's a quota like, oh, you only did it three percent in the last, you know. Ideally, you would never do it, right? Uh, not because you're ignoring what the Bible teaches about it, but because you don't have any members who become unfaithful. Yeah, it's not like we're but, oh, we're, oh we got to find more people to deliver to well, Satan. We got to find somebody to withdraw from. No, yeah. that's not what yeah. we're. But but the reality is that it does happen yeah. uh, that people become unfaithful, they sin and will not repent, and and therefore the Bible teaches a methodology to use in an effort to restore them. And we need to follow the full methodology that the Scriptures teach. That's right. The Scriptures are, again, very explicit on what we should do to those who are unfaithful. And we want to look at that on the program tonight. Earlier today, to our update list, we sent out the questions that we want to try to discuss in our study tonight. If you're not on our update list, get on it by sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com. We asked the questions, number one, the Scriptures tell us to withdraw yourselves from whom should we withdraw? Number two, what what does that mean? What's to be done and how is it to be done? Number three, why is the action necessary and important? Number four, can we withdraw from the withdrawn? Mm-hmm. And in other words, what we mean there, if a Christian has left the local congregation, has effectively ended all association with the local church, can we or should we still withdraw ourselves from such a person? Okay. All right, let's hear your thoughts on the program tonight. Lots of folks have chimed in on the email tonight. We'll get to those. And if you'd like to add your thoughts, uh, do so in the chat room, why don't you, while you're listening to us live. And, again, we will remind you, you can comment anytime, even if we're not live. If you're catching us on Apple Podcast or on some other podcast uh, feed, you can comment anytime. Questions at collegeview.com. All right, let's start out with that first question. From whom should we withdraw ourselves? Uh and I think that that basically the 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 general answer would be those who sin and will not repent. That's along the lines of what Mohan from Illinois said. He said we should withdraw fellowship from a brother in the church who refuses to repent of sin. Okay. All right. Thanks, I, I Mohan. Agree, Mohan. Exactly. Um, we got a couple of follow-up questions that we'll try to get to later on from Al in Vermont and from. Wayne. Uh, Wayne, and I'm not sure where Wayne is, but we'll try to get. To, they got a couple follow-up questions we want to try to deal with. Uh, Kent in Georgia says we should withdraw from those who walk disorderly. All right. And he references First Corinthians five, which yeah, is a that's text famous. That we're, we're going to be looking at that text, and also Second Thessalonians three, beginning verse six. And I think in Second Thessalonians three, verse six is actually that expression, walking disorderly. All right. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which you received of us. Yeah. My understanding of that statement uh, is that this is this is an expression that would denote... It's almost a military terminology, and you think of a troop of soldiers marching in step, and then you look and one guy is... He's and everybody else is leading with their right foot, and while they're leading with their right foot, he's leading with his left foot. He's clearly out of step. He's not mm-hmm. in. He's out of rank. He's not. He's not following um, the course. The, 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 they're they're obviously adhering to the. 
commands or instructions they've been given, and he's not, and so he's out of rank. And I think that's the gist of that statement there by Paul in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians three verse six. Yeah. All right. Uh, so what about those who will not repent? Um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter eighteen verse fifteen beginning this and i think is a well-known text to most folks who are listening tonight matthew 18 beginning verse 15 moreover if thy brother shall trespass against thee go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone if he shall hear thee thou hast gained thy brother but if he will not hear thee then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established and if he shall neglect to hear thee tell it to the church but if he neglect to hear the church let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican um Notice that underlying all of that was an effort to gain the brother back, mm-hmm. restore the brother. In Matthew 18, it seems clear that this was a private matter between two individuals. And so the one who was wrong tries to restore the one who has sinned against him. If he refuses, he takes two or three witnesses. If he refuses, then it's brought before the whole church. And and if he refuses to the whole church seeking him seeking his repentance then he is to be you know, the way the the lord worded it treated as a heathen and a publican that because the jews didn't have any dealings with heathens and publicans and so he's basically basically saying have no dealings with that man if he refuses to repent um just a little bit of a side note matthew 18 the the, the three-step methodology of matthew 18 some people kind of get confused on i think this is clearly a private sin this is not a public sin okay uh so in matters of private sin between brethren or between individuals we would follow this methodology carefully in the case of a public sin which is already known then steps one and two are we're already past steps one and two and the whole church knows about it so the whole church deals with it okay all right uh matthew 18 certainly gives us some good examples and instructions there on what we need to do when those, as Mohan put it, uh, are in refuse to repent of sin. So that and, and, and that's sort of a general statement. I think we can be a little more specific about some of the kinds of sins that might be involved. Uh, okay. I, I really think any sin, any sin that a person is committing and refuses to repent, would could potentially lead to this action. We know in First Corinthians chapter five that certain sins of immorality are listed. There was a, a real problem in the church at, at Corinth, and the chapter starts out with describing a man who has his own father's wife, and the church hadn't done anything about it, and Paul was rebuking them for that. Mm-hmm. But in the course of that discussion, he says in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one, know not to eat. Um, Paul identified several sins there. I don't think he means that to be a categorical listing of sins. Uh, a number of the sins mentioned involve immorality. Uh, uh, but even in that list, he mentions things like covetousness. All right. So in, I think Paul is also saying, name the sin if he won't repent of it. You've got to deal with that. All right. Uh, we, we tend to categorize sins as, well, that's worse than others, but uh, the Bible doesn't do that, as you mentioned there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, even things like covetousness are labeled right there with uh, railers and fornicators and drunkards. You know, it's interesting. I don't think 
In fact, I could say, I, I believe I can say with absolute certainty, I've never known in the church for someone to be withdrawn from for covetousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we, we probably all fight the sin of covetousness, but I don't know anybody who's ever been withdrawn from because they were a covetous individual. But that, that just, I, I think that suggests the, the thorough nature of this idea. Any sin that a person commits and won't repent, let the church deal with it. Okay. Then another thing that's specified is false teaching. If, a, if someone's teaching false doctrine, 1 Timothy 6, beginning verse 3, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, from such withdraw thyself. So false teachers would be included as those who should be withdrawn from. Uh, I think probably closely associated with that would be those who cause division. And among brethren, Romans sixteen seventeen, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. We're going to talk a little bit more about that verse coming up. Al in Vermont has asked a question about Romans sixteen seventeen. We'll try to talk about that in a minute. But but notice that the action there was encouraged because they were uh, causing offenses contrary to the doctrine which they had learned. And then, of course, sort of, the, again, that catch-all expression in Second Thessalonians 3, verse 6, uh, those who walk disorderly. Um, I, I, I think, follow me on this. This might take just a, a little bit of mental uh, uh, gymnastics. But Boy. in verse 6, he says, Withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, not after the traditions which he received of us. Okay. In verse 14, he says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. So, in other words, if if he does something contrary to what you have received from us, if he does something contrary uh, to what's stated even within this epistle, he says... uh, have no company with that man. Well, then, so what would that include? What kind of things did Paul talk about in this epistle? Go back to chapter 2, verse 15. Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. So basically, Paul says, keep everything you've been taught. So in this epistle, he says, keep everything you've been taught. Then he says, if anybody doesn't do what we're saying in this epistle, don't have company with him. Well, in the epistle, he said, keep it all. So, in other words, you can sort of make a backward argument and say that Paul was saying anything and everything could be covered by this instruction. All right. Uh, you see, does that make sense? I think sort it does. Of. I think it does. <laughs> my, my, my brain's still spinning, but I think it, I think it works. Monty? Well, as we, as we read these passages that talks about withdrawing ourselves from people, one of the primary focuses, and we'll probably talk about it some more, is it got the idea of restoring this person, helping them overcome this sinful state they're in, helping them to repent and be back right with God. So it's important, I think, to realize that and the focus of it. That's that's what that's our goal. We're not trying to be mean to anybody. Right. Uh, we're not trying to be spiteful or, or any other well, negative just, you, terms. It's just clear you don't like that guy, Monty. That's why you're doing it because you just don't like him. You hate him. Yeah, but the. Forget about that. That's a, that's my sin, and you may need to withdraw okay. from me for I was, that. I was speaking. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Because that's what we're often accused of, yeah. right? 
But the fact of the matter is, if anybody understands what the scriptures teach, and and if we do it right, obviously we're we're not perfect in application always, but if we're properly, it is an act of love, as you said, that we're trying to restore his soul. All right, we're going to withdraw ourselves for a few minutes, get a break, and then we'll get back, we'll get your thoughts. Uh, Any comments, we want to hear them in the chat room. Don't go anywhere, the Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. There's more of the Virtual Bible Study to come after these important messages. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jerry Fralix. I'm a member of uh, College View Church of Christ here in Columbia, Tennessee, and I have a few words to say. Occasionally, we hear parents who say that they don't want to force religion on their children. These misguided folks think they're doing their kids a favor by letting them decide for themselves. They're afraid that there will be some resentment in their children later if religion had been crammed down their throats. If we may be absolutely blunt in response, that is one of the most ridiculous ideas anyone ever suggested. We force many things on our children. We insist that they bathe, brush their teeth, change their clothes, etc. We cram education down their throats by making them attend school regularly. We demand that they do their homework. We force them to eat good food, get adequate rest, and do other things that are important to their health and development. We do all of this because we know it is in their best interest, and we do it even when the kids don't like it. Why is it this such a common sense approach is neglected by parents who are determined to let the kids decide for themselves when it comes to religion? Dr. James Dobson writes, There's a critical period when certain kinds of instruction are easier in the life of children. There is a brief period during childhood when youngsters are vulnerable to religious training. Their concepts of right and wrong are formulated during this time, and their views of God begin to solidify. The opportunity of that period must be seized when it is available. The absence or misapplication of instruction through that prime time period may place a severe limitation on the depths of the child's later devotion to God. When parents withhold indoctrination from their small children, allowing them to decide for themselves, the adults are almost guaranteeing that the youngsters will decide in the negative. God's word has always taught us the truth on the subject. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6 Here's some quotes worth pondering. Anger is a bad counselor. Steel that loses its temper is worthless, and so are men who lose theirs. It takes a great man to be a good listener. There are two times in a man's life when he should not gamble, when he can't afford it and when he can Immoral means have never led to moral ends. Man, wish I'd said that. See, I told you we'd be back. The virtual Bible study continues. We're back on the program talking about withdrawing ourselves, church discipline. It's a rarely, well, probably rarely discussed and maybe even more rarely practiced in churches today. And it's certainly something that the Bible instructs and commands. Uh, as you mentioned there in your little Bible gymnastics uh, session that you gave us, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, one of the things that we'd have to do is follow what Paul said to do in Second Thessalonians 3, 6. Yeah. I mean, if you're not, then you're walking disorderly yourself. Yeah. But, but again, just to really summarize those, those reasons why one might be withdrawn from, a person who sins won't repent, living an immoral life, false teacher causing division. Again, that's one that's rarely practiced. We very seldom ever hear someone. But we've known plenty of people who cause division. We rarely see people who cause division get withdrawn from. But anyone who walks disorderly, which is sort of a catch-all. Our second question, Jacob, was what is to be done? So how is this done? How how do you go about what, what actually takes place when we withdraw ourselves from someone? All right. The first step in that would be to note that man or mark them. 
we've, and we're going to keep coming back to a lot of the same verses again and again. But Second Thessalonians three fourteen says, "If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed." Now, I think there's real similar terminology in Romans sixteen seventeen. Now, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Now, I honestly don't think that this is mystery terminology, that there's something mystical about marking an individual. Sometimes when you hear people talk about that, it's almost like they're suggesting that there's sort of some sort of, I don't know, weird uh, ceremony or something that goes takes place when you mark an individual. I really think that that word simply means to to note it, to be aware of it, uh, to make it known, to alert people that this is taking place. Okay. I think it's just the idea of sounding it out, yeah. making it known. Okay, is all that's involved in that. Okay. Now we had a follow up question from Al about that. And he he added the New American Standard translation of that. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teachings which you have learned and turn away from them. And he asked, is this marking an act of discipline? Should the congregation that exercise discipline make it known to other congregations if the marked person is seeking to join himself to them, or is it the responsibility of the church to investigate the one who is seeking fellowship? That's an interesting question. The first part of the question, is the marking a, 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 an act of discipline? I think it's at least a part of the process of discipline. Yeah, yeah. You've got to note the person as being an offender. You've got to note them as being an unrepentant sinner. Yep. You've got to be aware. You've got to be alerted that this case exists so i at least think it is it it may be meant to be a synonymous uh be synonymous with the whole process because the verse goes on to say uh have no or uh, avoid them uh or have no contact with them turn away from them so it may be used synonymously but at least it is a, a necessary an obviously necessary part of what we're doing. You've got to be on the alert. You have to be aware that, that this situation exists before you can act upon it. All right. Now, he, he, There's a follow-up. He asked the question, uh, so let, let's say that we mark an individual here because maybe they're teaching false doctrine. Is it our duty to spread the word to all other congregations that this individual is, in fact, teaching false doctrine? Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on that, Monty? Um, I'm not. Well, a part of this noting or identifying, uh, if if this person has left here and we've had to identify him as a false teacher and we've withdrawn ourselves from him, as Paul talks about repeatedly here, and we know that he's gone to another faithful cross town or wherever and is starting to worship there, would we not care enough about that congregation and the people there to want to warn them that, hey, here's a false teacher. You need to look out for him. Yeah. I think it would be appropriate, if nothing else, in that regard. Uh, it might be appropriate because, part of the again, part of the process here is to help re- this person repent and leave this sinful Good thing. Point. Well, if he can just go across town to some other congregation without any consequence, we're not. it's not helping him. And it may take some period of time before this other congregation finds out what he's done. So it would to help this person to repent, I, I, to know that you can go over there, 
but we're going to let them know if we find out because they need to know and you need to know yeah. that you can't just hop churches and be okay. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I, I don't think it would be that we would be duty bound to, to track this guy wherever he may. You know, if he takes off for parts unknown, we don't know where he is. Uh-huh. I, I don't think it's our, our bound duty to, to keep a tail on him from now on wherever he may end up. But if we know that he's gone somewhere, uh, I, I think, again, because we, what we really want him to do is repent, and, and we don't want him to go and find safe haven someplace where, he's, where, where his deeds uh, will go undetected for maybe some time before he does it again. Uh, so I, I, I think we can. I think it certainly would be appropriate a, a, in a certain situations. Judgment will have to prevail. The only thing I would say is I don't think it's our bound duty to do so because we may not even know where he goes. If it was a bound duty, we would have to track him down and stay on his tail indefinitely. However, Al asked, what about the, the is it the responsibility of the church where he lands to investigate? I think yes. I think, I think a, a definite yes to that question. You know, we, we need to ask some questions. Have you, you know, are you a faithful Christian, do you come to us as a member in good standing from such and such congregation? Uh, is there some issue you need to resolve with them before you come here and identify with us? That's what I, I think those questions are all appropriate. And I actually think in Acts chapter 9, when Paul came back from Damascus to Jerusalem, having been converted, they they were not ready to throw their arms wide open until Barnabas spoke up and defended his his faithfulness to them, they were. They, it was certainly appropriate for them to question whether or not he was. A There's true. never any rebuke mentioned mm-hmm. for them for being careful about who they took into their number. Right, exactly right. Yeah, and Paul Paul calls people out in his writings extensively for those who are practicing error. Hymenaeus and Philetus, uh, yeah. their, their their teachings were like a gangrene or a canker. Yeah. Well, he he was warning people of. These to be on, on alert for them, and so I think it would be appropriate uh, to some extent to warn other, maybe other congregations, other Christians about certain individuals who are practicing error. Yeah, I think it. I, I think that that it's certainly appropriate. Uh, so I, I actually think that it, we're talking, what we're talking about here is how do we go about this? What is what is what do we do? And I think the first step there is to mark these people, make it known that they are guilty of these sins. The, the, the biblical expression is to withdraw ourselves from them. We're going to talk more about that at the end of our study, but I'm really insistent that we use the biblical terminology when we're describing this action. We withdraw ourselves we have fallen into the practice of saying withdrawing fellowship. And that expression, that phrase, that specific phrase is not found anywhere in the New Testament. Now, the problem with it is, as we're going to see at the end of our study, is it leads people to make an argument that based upon that expression, when the expression itself is not even found in the New Testament, what the New Testament says is to withdraw ourselves, Second uh, Thessalonians 3, 6, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which ye have received of us. There's that expression, withdraw yourself. Paul said the same thing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verse, uh, 1 Timothy 6, beginning verse 3. 
If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, from such withdraw thyself. So it's always withdraw yourselves, withdraw yourself. Uh, and, and basically what we are doing here uh, is that we are abstaining from association with these people, especially social contact. Uh, Paul is going to talk about, in 1 Corinthians 5, he's going to talk about with such one know not to eat. In other words, we're withdrawing ourselves. Our, our friendly social contact with these individuals uh, is, is removed. We're not, we're not going to engage them at that level anymore. And I think as we look in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's clearly saying you do that in order to wake them up and alert them to the shape that they're in. All right, and that has some other things associated with it. And uh, should we get a break and then talk about them yeah, on the other yeah. side? Yeah, let's All do right. that. So what does this withdrawing ourselves mean? How, how does that look in our lives? What implications and impact will that have on our relationship with those who are walking in error, those who, as Mohan put it, refuse to repent from sin? How is it going to affect our relationship with those Christians? 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeu.com. We're back after this week's bullet point. Don't go anywhere. You might miss something. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. This is Greg Wynn with this week's bullet point. What do you do when you see a fellow Christian make a mistake? It may be a simple error of judgment, or it could be a more serious blunder, a sin that can potentially send his soul to eternal hell. What will you do? Actually, there are several options open to you. You could ignore the situation totally, or you might, in your own mind, ridicule his foolishness. If you're a little bolder, you could gossip with others about his error, belittling him as you do so. You see, there are a number of things you could do, but of course there's only one thing you should do. There's only one God-ordained course of action. Quote, He which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. James 5, verse 20. And Galatians 6, verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The fact is that we all need help, encouragement, and strengthening that comes from our brethren. Sadly, too often we do things that hinder rather than help our brother when he is down. The next time you are confronted with such a situation, remember that if you want to please God, your choice is already made. If your brother has made a mistake, there can be no ignoring of the problem, no backbiting gossip, no thoughts of ridicule or humiliation. Go to your brother with the help he needs. Don't forget that you are certain to need this kind of help in the future, too. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Alex Dvorak, reminding you to listen to the Virtual Bible Study every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. Now that you've had your break, it's back to the program. And we're back on the program tonight talking about church discipline and uh, withdrawing ourselves and marking those who are walking disorderly. We want to remind you this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We'd like to hear from you. Questions at collegeview.com is the email address to use. We'd like to send you a bumper sticker for you to help spread the word about the program. You can get one of those by emailing us with your snail at collegeview.com. They're free of charge. We would just appreciate you helping us spread the word about the program. All right. We're talking about church discipline, and we're talking about what we are to do, how we are to do it. We commented from Romans 16:17 and 2 Thessalonians 3:14. We're to to uh, mark these people. We're to note them. Uh, it it says in Second Thessalonians three six, withdraw yourselves. First Timothy six verse five, from such withdraw thyself. So what's involved in withdrawing ourselves? Well, first we are to avoid these people. Uh-huh. Romans sixteen seventeen, avoid them. It says that 
That's, that's pretty plain language, if you ask me. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how you say that any plainer. That's a general thing. Avoid these people. You're not to you're not to have company with these people. Some people think that the only thing we're prohibited from doing is eating with them. And I've actually known of Christians who who spend time with these these uh, individuals who are being disciplined. Uh, they go places with them. They do things. Well, but we didn't eat anything. Well, you didn't avoid them. Right. You may not have eaten, but you you didn't you, you you did not avoid them. And and Romans sixteen seventeen says avoid them. That's important. We got to make sure that uh, we understand that uh, the, the ramifications here. Now again, the the reason why we're doing this, and Monty, you've stressed this a couple times already. We're trying to restore these people. We want them to see that we value their soul so much that we'd be willing to sever our friendly social contact with them for the for the purpose of restoring their soul we're doing this as an effort to wake them up to just how bad their case is it's so bad that we'd be willing to not any longer enjoy our friendly association with you so that you will be aware of just how bad we think this is we we want you to repent money yeah it's not because we're angry uh we're maybe disappointed in them but when you get down to it if not for no other reason, we're doing it because the Bible tells us that's what we're supposed to do. God said do it, and we're going to do it. <clears throat> but the purpose is primarily, first and foremost, to restore them, to help them to go to heaven, because that's what we're supposed to do is help each other go to heaven. Exactly right. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven questions at collegeview.com in the chat room. Randy says, a church that does not gauge in church discipline, are they not out of step with our Lord Jesus? Yeah, that, that's out of step in itself, isn't it, Randy? I agree with you. Okay. Uh, it is part of what we're supposed to be doing. If we're not doing it, then that in itself is a sin. Um, so we're, not, we're to avoid these people. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, uh, I've written to you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one, know not to eat. So we're not to have any company anyway. That's along the lines of avoiding. We avoid them. We don't have company. With, and that would include, obviously, not eating with them. Not eating with them in a social setting is just a one particular of how we no longer associate with these people. We're avoiding them. We, this is talking about our social contact with these individuals, and we no longer have a social association with these people. We once had friendly uh, camaraderie with them, and now because of the decision they've made and their refusal to repent, we're saying to alert you to how bad we think this is, we just we we just can't keep company with you. We're not we're we're not going to do anything with you, much much less eat with you. We're not going to eat with you. Uh, so that that's what that's what that's plainly teaching. Now, it doesn't stop at that. I think there's a really important step in this process, and that is we need to admonish them as a brother. Second okay. Thessalonians three fourteen. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Notice that he may be ashamed. That's why we're doing this. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That again, as Money has said, we're designing his repentance. I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't shy away from this. We want him to be ashamed of what he did, that he may be ashamed. We want him to be ashamed of what he's done, and, and that will lead him to repentance. Uh, we're going to admonish him. We're going to keep encouraging him uh, as a brother that he would repent because we desire his salvation. All right. Now, 
I do have a little bit of a scruple about uh, the subject, the topic of our program tonight, the subject. We're, we're titled, we're calling it Church Discipline. Yet I see some verses in here that are directed to the individual. Yeah, I think that's a question. I was going to add that in as question number five. I didn't put it in our question. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 5, Paul was writing to Timothy. He wasn't writing to a church. He was writing to an individual. And he said, from such withdraw thyself. Uh, I think we often think of a collective action. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, would, uh, would uh, verse 4 and 5, would be a collective action. Yeah, when you come together, yeah. he says, do this, take this action. So clearly, collectivities, local congregations are instructed to do this, but individuals are right. too, uh, based on what we read there in 1 Timothy 6, verse 5. Uh, sometimes individuals have to take action. Uh, maybe the church doesn't, uh, or it may be that this particular individual is not even a member of the of the congregation here. The congregation here wouldn't have any authority to withdraw from that person. He's he's maybe two states away, but he's a friend of mine, or he's a family relative of mine, a and business we, partner, a business partner of mine. We've had friendly association together for years and years, but now he's sinning and he won't repent. And I've approached him and urged him to do so. And so I'm going to withdraw myself from him because, again, what I'm really interested in is, is that he would be saved. And so uh, I, I think that that's an interesting point. We often think of it as something that only the, well, the, the church hasn't withdrawn. I, I've actually heard people make this excuse. They are continuing to freely associate with some brother who is obviously unfaithful to the Lord. And they justify it by saying, well, the church hasn't withdrawn from them. Well, either, maybe they should have and didn't, or maybe they don't have the authority in this case. Maybe he's a member of some other congregation. But you know that he's unfaithful, and your continued association with him is just encouraging him in his sin. Do you not care for his soul? Will you not withdraw yourself from this person? All right. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com. I think probably some of the times we want to categorize sins. You know, if, if he was a murderer or a fornicator, then I well, we draw the line there. But you know, he's just he doesn't care about worshiping God anymore, or he yeah. he uh, I don't know. You, you name the sin, uh, we sort of categorize I, I, that. Well, we can keep associating with him for that, even though he knows better and he refuses to repent. Okay, real quick, let's catch what Kent said on this. He says. Fallen brethren need to be approached by those who are spiritual. They need to be taught, admonished, and encouraged to repent and return to Christ. If they refuse to do so, the situation needs to be made known to the local church and the members of that church. Out of love and concern for the fallen, uh, out of love and concern for the fallen, need to seek to restore them to the condition of faithfulness to Christ. If such fails, the local church collectively and distributively uh, needs to withdraw fellowship from those who are fallen until repentance and restoration takes place. Uh, I would say withdraw themselves rather than withdraw fellowship. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Okay. But I agree with you, Kent. I think right. that's right. Thank you, Kent. Um, now, uh, Wayne had a question about this. What if the person, uh, what if the person withdrawn from is a family member? We have withdrawn from my sister, he says, but my parents have not changed their relationship with her, which makes life extremely hard for us and our relationship with them. Well, Wayne, we fully sympathize with that 
uh, with that scenario that you have described. And, you, uh, and please know that you are not alone in that. Others have experienced the same sort of thing. Uh, uh, I think you're doing the right thing, and I would commend you for that. Now, I think there are a couple of caveats here uh, that we might mention, although I think they're rare. They're, they're fairly rare exceptions, but to the general rule, withdraw yourself. But, but I, I think I can paint a picture of, of a situation. Here's a woman married to a man. She's married to him. She has all kinds of marital obligations to this man. They're both Christians, but he becomes unfaithful, and the church disciplines him they mark him they uh, they withdraw themselves from him well she's still married to him she still lives under the same roof with him she still has all kind of marital obligations to fulfill to him uh, withdrawing is not grounds for divorce obviously so in that in that close relationship you can see where she would ha- have a different treatment of the man than anybody else would have there are other uh, scenarios in First Timothy chapter five verse eight. But any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So, so I, maybe you have minor children. A minor child. So I've got I've got this fifteen year old son. He was baptized when he was twelve, and he's been a Christian. But now he's 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 just gone off. He's 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 left the faith. He's becoming uh, terribly wild and unruly. The church has had to withdraw from him, but he's still a responsibility of mine as a minor child. I still have to provide for his needs. I think that would be a, a I, although that's I think an extremely rare case. That, that, that would that would still be a case where, which might involve some different judgments. But those are really ex, really minor exclusions to the general rule. Withdraw yourselves. If, what it's, if, if it's my sister or my brother, if it's my cousin, if it's my uh, if it's a, maybe a grown child of mine who's not a minor, not under my house, not a, a, my responsibility to support, uh, I think then the, the general rule applies. Maybe it's a widowed mother. First Timothy chapter five is talking about that. You yeah. may have some responsibilities towards. Maybe, Your mother, yeah, maybe, maybe I have unfaithful. an elderly widowed mother, and she's unfaithful, but I still have to support her. Right. I'm obligated. So there might be a very few exceptions to the general rule. I'm willing to grant those, but the general rule is clear. Avoid them. Now, let's, I think this question answers itself, though, when we get to the why, and we'll need to do that when we get back. Let's take a break, and we'll go to the, other, okay. to the top of the hour on that. Because if we understand the why, then I'm not going to be looking for loopholes. Yeah. I'm not going to be. Oh, I can, I can still go to Thanksgiving with my brother who's living in sin. If I understand the why, there's no question in my mind if I'm going to go to Thanksgiving with that brother exactly. or not. Exactly. All right, so let's get that on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. The verse Bible study continues right for this. Wow, it isn't so hard to understand the Bible after all. There's more exciting study and discussion coming after these messages. Hello, my name is Trent Haynes, and I'm a member of the College View Church of Christ. In a scanning of the book of Proverbs, it provides us several reasons to discipline our children. To show you don't hate them. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Chapter 13, verse 24. To give them hope, discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. Chapter 19, verse 18. To help them for a lifetime, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not turn from it. Chapter 22, verse 6. To chase away foolishness. 
Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Chapter 22, verse 15. To save his soul, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with a rod, he will not die. Punish him with a rod and save his soul from death. Chapter 23, verse 13 through 14. For your own comfort, discipline your child, and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. Chapter 29, verse 17. Parents need to read and understand these passages. So too should our children. We're tracking the trends on the Virtual Bible Study. In his recent book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We?, Wake Forest philosophy professor Christian Miller cites studies that correlate regular church attendance with around 50% lower levels of domestic violence, 350% higher levels of donations to charity, and 200% higher levels of volunteering. He also notes that religious people are far more likely to donate blood, help the homeless, and express empathy for those less fortunate. That information is via the Gospel Coalition. The Word of God says in Mark 12, verse 28, beginning, One of the scribes came and asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. God's Word has the answers. Let's get back to studying it. The virtual Bible study rolls along. All right, and let's get back to studying what God's Word says about the subject of withdrawing ourselves. Uh, why? So we talked about what we do. We, we, we talked about who would be a subject of this action uh, and how we should do it. And we've really touched on this quite a bit, but why would we do this? Well, and, and, and Randy mentioned in the chat room, we do it. For if no for no other reason to obey God, the Word of God is just real plain on this. And so bottom line, there's a lot telling us that we should take this action. And if we didn't have any other understanding of reasons why, the very simple fact that God said to do it would be enough. It's clearly taught by God. Integral into those instructions is uh, what uh, Kent has said. Such an action is necessary as an attempt to save the soul of the lost, fallen child of God and to limit the contaminated influence of sin. So when God do it, he did tell us some other whys, as Kent references there, for the sake of the lost soul. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved to the day of the Lord Jesus. Yeah. So we're, so we're doing it to obey God, but we're obviously doing it for that lost brother. We're trying to restore him. Notice the Second Thessalonians 3 Verse 14, we do it that he may be ashamed. We want to shock him. We want to we want to shock him back into reality. We want to alert him about how bad this situation is. Uh, as you mentioned, Jacob, 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says, uh, Deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That the, that his spirit might be saved. I think it's in Paul says that it is... We, we deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I've always wondered a little bit about that phraseology, but clearly I think Paul is saying we want to make him feel uncomfortable. We don't want him to be comfortable in his sin. We want him. We, want we him don't to, want to enable him. We don't want to enable him. We want him to feel some consequence of the sin that he's engaging. Uh, and and so Paul uses, a, I think, a pretty strong phrase, although I don't know all, I'm not sure I've ever understood all the implications of uh, uh, the dis- delivering him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, but I do think it involves those kind of things. Monty? I think that idea of the destruction of the flesh, if we think about it back when the law of Moses was given, some of the sins that they 
a person could do, they were supposed to be put out of the camp. You know, yeah. you're not one of us anymore. You're gone. Cut well, off. In, a, in effect, that was a death sentence because here mm-hmm. they were in the wilderness. Yeah. They'd been running. Uh, they, you know, they was gone from Egypt. They couldn't go back there. All these heathen nations around them. If you got put out of the camp, you're not associating with them anymore. The heathen nations around is going to pick you off. You, you, you were effectively put to death there. So when he's talking about that destruction of the flesh there, I think he's talking about you're not going to be one of us anymore. You're going to be thrown out to the heat and, and effectively spiritually dead or physically you don't have that support group that you yeah. had anymore. And so that I think that may be a, a, a way to understand well, that. I think that's a good explanation. All right. Uh, and uh, there certainly are other reasons why we would do this. Well, Kent mentioned, and I th- he says to limit the contaminating influence of sin, and I think that's true too. So we, we withdraw for that fella. We, we first do it to obey God. We secondly do it for that person who's engaged in the sin that we might restore him. But we do it for the church as well. In 1 Corinthians 5, now remember the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 5 is dealing with this subject. And in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Paul's condemning the church at Corinth because they had not taken this action against a brother when they should have. And he says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And and so Paul relates this sinning brother who had not been disciplined by the church as as a an evil leaven. And and the uh, analogy is is really a good one because you put if you're making bread and you put just a little leaven in, it will spread through the whole lump. And and. He's, Paul is saying that this this man in his sin, and you've not addressed it, and you've not withdrawn from him, he's he's in a position to infect the whole church with what he's doing. Everybody is going to be touched by this. And so Paul is clearly saying that a third motivation, do it to obey God, do it for the individual who's lost, do it for the church, to rid the church of this evil influence. And I think also there's, there's a, the sense of instruction that the church receives. Uh, basically, that kind of conduct is not going to be tolerated. Right. God won't tolerate it, and we won't either. If you're going to sin and not repent, now we all sin. Uh, well, nobody's perfect. We're not saying we're, you got to be perfect to be here, but we are saying that if you are sinning, and you and you've been addressed about that, and you and you adamantly refuse to repent of the sins you're committing, then we're not going to tolerate that either. All right. You got comments? We have time to get them. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. All right. Uh, in our in our last few minutes here, Jacob, let's take on this fourth question: Can we withdraw from the withdrawn? That's an expression we often hear: withdraw from the withdrawn. A lot of people say, "No, you can't withdraw from the withdrawn. They've already left. You can't, there's nothing. They left you. There's nothing you can do." And basically, they're saying that if a Christian has left the local congregation, has effectively ended all association with the local church. Uh, my question is: Can we or should we uh, still withdraw ourselves from such a person? Some people are saying you can't. In other words, their expression is you can't withdraw from the withdrawn. They have withdrawn themselves. There's nothing left to withdraw is the argument that is made. And this is where this uh, phraseology, I think, is so critical, that we use the right phraseology. 
You can't withdraw fellowship. They've already withdrawn. We're not in fellowship. They, maybe they've been gone. Maybe they won't. They refuse to talk to us. They won't accept our phone calls. Um, if you send them a letter to their house, they mark it return to sender. Uh, they block your. They block you on their cell phone. They won't receive your text messages. They just. They have withdrawn themselves. There is no fellowship between us anymore. We don't, we already uh, have this alienation. So they're saying there's no fellowship left. You can't withdraw fellowship. They already severed the fellowship relationship by their action. Well, that's an, uh, that's an argument that I think is based upon that false phraseology. The New Testament does not say withdraw fellowship. It says withdraw yourselves. And I think that's really important. Uh, so... Why would we do it? If, if, if this is the scenario and this person has gone off and they, they've con- completely alienated themselves from us, none of us in the local church uh, have been able to make effective contact with them for some time. Now, why would, we, why would we still withdraw from these people? Well, same reason. It's still God's command. And it, it, the, the erring brother still needs to know that it's taken place, that, that we have marked him and that we're avoiding him. That we, in other words, we're not going to let him take all the action. We're going to take an action, too. We're going to do it to obey God. We're going to do it because we're still sending a message to him. Uh, he, he may not want to acknowledge it, but he's still getting a message. We've withdrawn ourselves from him. But the church still needs it, too. Remember, we said the third reason we do this is so that the church benefits by means of instruction the church is instructed that this is not to be tolerated the church is in and there's a protection afforded to the church in the sense that that man's sin is not as likely to infect others in the church Kent answers the question, it all depends. In some scenarios, some fallen brethren do not consider themselves out of fellowship with God in the church. They continue to interact with the local members and have an influence upon their lives. In such scenarios, corrective and instruction discipline, instructive discipline needs to be administered where the fallen child of God is sought to be restored. If such fails, then fellowship must be withdrawn. In other situations, some brethren simply leave the local church, cut off all association with brethren, and make it clear that they are no longer members of the church. We cannot force such folks to do right. As a matter of fact, they refuse to discuss the situation or even study the scriptures with us. When such happens, the local church needs to be informed regarding the situation, and the members need to take great care in not extending any future fellowship until repentance and proper correction is made on the part of those in such circumstances. I think Kent basically is saying we're almost getting we're marking same, them. We're basically yeah. at the same point there. Yeah, I, I would probably word it just slightly different, but we're, we're, we're pretty much at the same point. But again, I would argue that the reason why we would do that is the same reason why we would do it initially, and that is uh, because God said to do it. Because the fallen brother, even if, you know, so this guy's been gone now for several months, and he won't receive our phone calls. He refuses to accept our letters. Uh, we, we've tried all kinds of ways to reach out to him, and he blocks us. i tell you, he still knows, though. He still knows that the action has been taken, uh, and, and, and it's supposed to make him ashamed. Uh, you know, we're delivering his flesh how did paul say uh, we deliver him to satan for the destruction of the flesh he knows that and then of course the i still think the church is in is is instructed and informed in the process money you know i think the idea here is, is we still in a lot of ways are using the words wrong when we think about that withdrawing fellowship 
fellowship would be what would happen here at the church maybe we're in a joint participation in a spiritual work that's what fellowship is but the scriptures tell us to withdraw ourselves. you know greg you and i went fishing last week if some if for some reason i had fallen or become fallen away and no longer faithful and won't respond i won't repent and i say hey greg let's go camping up at such and such the fishing's good this week you'd say no money i can't do that because i have withdrawn myself from you because you won't live right so that then, you know, I don't care that the church isn't associating with me because I'm not going there anymore. I, you know, I'm not worried about that. But the fact that me and you can't be buddies anymore yeah. is what's going to hopefully, the idea, that's the idea behind this to help me to change, to repent, because I want that association with you. Yeah, and I think that's really why it's important to, to adhere to the, the way the Bible describes the action of withdrawing ourselves. And I don't, there's not any place in the New Testament that says withdraw fellowship. That's our invented phrase. And it falls short because, as you said, Monty, our, our spiritual fellowship may well have been severed by their actions. But we can still take an action of withdrawing ourselves, our social company, our friendly association with them. Uh, and, and I think that I think that's the design of this thing, that they that they feel a pain from that consequence. Now, I would also go further to say that's why it's really important for us to develop close personal relationships in the local congregation. So that, I, in other words, I need to have close friends in the church so that if I do slip away, those close associations are a more powerful draw to pull me back. If I keep everybody in the church at arm's length, and I don't have any good, friendly, social relationship with anybody in the church, then when they withdraw themselves from me, I say, so what? I never did anything with them anyway. And, and so I'm hurting myself. Uh, we need to develop close relationships in the church, that serves as sort of an insurance policy in, in the event that we might slip back in the future. Mohan in Illinois has made this comment. He says, if someone has fallen away from the faith, we can no longer have Christian fellowship with them nor consider them in a saved state currently. However, I don't see anything wrong with keeping in touch with them and using opportunities to witness to them. Our light, our light may shine upon them. Well, I think that's the idea of, of 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 15, where it says, count them not as an enemy, but right. admonish them as a brother. Right. So you're not keeping in touch with them. Hey, did you see the game Friday night? <laughs> hey, let's go, let's go out to eat. Yeah. Let's go get some strawberry pie at Shoney's. But keeping in touch with them, say, hey, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm still thinking about you, still praying for you. And if I there's anything you. I do to help you, let me know. Can we study? Can, yeah. we, can we talk about this? Yeah. Yeah. But All we're right. not talking about the ball game. We're talking about this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think it covers it. All right, Monty. Final thoughts? Well, I just as we as we've talked and repeated that one of the main purposes of this is to help us all go to heaven. Uh, it's going to help us by doing God's word and keeping His command. Hopefully, to help the fallen brother to have a desire to repent and be right with God. Because all that really matters is that we work together to go to heaven. That's right. Exactly right. Dad, thank you for thanks, the discussion. Monty, thanks for being here. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word and hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.
Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit College View to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.